you what? I know. I know. It's why. You, it was either wear your rain gear in here or sit there. No questions, really? This could be like a first. You have. That's either a good thing or a bad thing. We have a question. And what does 40 say? Oh, where he's saying, is that where he says, every, you know, he's just said everybody sins, and then he says, I write this to you so you won't sin? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely going to go over that. Like, how can everybody sin, but now you don't? Uh, but, so yeah, I'll definitely talk about why that is. That's a great question. Any other questions? You're, you're kind of acting like it. Okay. Yeah, right, right. That, that's what we call misplaced faith. Okay, well, let's, oh, no, oh, Linda has a question. There were times in our class that we weren't sure what it meant him, whether it meant Christ or whether it meant the non-believers. I mean, we... Oh, really? Okay. Uh, I'm probably not going to address that. Can you think of a specific time that you weren't sure about the him? I thought you were going to say you weren't sure whether it was God or Jesus, and I was going to give you Pastor Dale's answer to that. God, Jesus, same guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, that would be knowing God, Jesus, same guy. <laughs> that one. Yeah, no, no, not, not in that instance, that, that that would be knowing, that if you say you know God, I think is what he's saying there, or say you know Christ, I, I think, if I'm remembering it rightly. But I'm oh, that one. Now he's turning and talking to believers, and I, I'll mention that just briefly, but yeah, that one, he's now talking to the believers. He's been sort of maybe even having this fictitious argument with the secessionists before that, and now he's trying to talk to them. Not fictitious argument, but just, you know, like when I have arguments in my head. Yeah. <laughs> may or may not be with my husband, but yeah, yeah. So, like that. They're real arguments. The people just aren't there to hear them. And they're good arguments. The people just aren't there to hear them. Okay. Well, any other questions? Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today and uh, for these ladies and, um, gosh, their desire and their willingness to know your words and, and to know uh, what you are saying to us in your word. And, uh, Father, that just inspires me, and um, I just thank you and praise you for that. May, uh, may what I speak today be your words. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we started in 1 John last week, and I didn't put this up there, I'm, I'm kicking myself a little bit, but I do this late at night, and sometimes it ends up not being what I wanted it to be. But, um, but the, when we started with the prologue, the first four verses, we read this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then he says, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, meaning Jesus, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his, with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So he begins this 
entire letter with a proclamation. And that proclamation is about Jesus and about who Jesus is. That is Christology. An understanding, a right understanding, or any understanding, but in this case, a right understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. And his emphasis in writing that, uh, John's emphasis uh, was that he and others are eye, ear, and hand witnesses of the word of life, of Jesus. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him, and so they know it is true. And then in verses 5 to 7, which we'll look at in a minute, he says, this is the message that we heard from Jesus. God is light. And then he goes on to say, we can't claim to have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, because God is light. And that's a, a, a claim that the secessionists were making. Hey, we have fellowship with God, and yet they walked in darkness. If we do that, if we claim to have fellowship with God while actually walking in darkness, we lie, and we do not do the truth. Uh, If we have fellowship with God, we will walk in the light because we're walking in his light. He is light. Now in verses 8 through 10, he's going to give us more claims that the secessionists were making. Uh, Beginning at verse 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So he's going to anticipate their argument a little bit here, that, that sort of you know, argument in your, your head sort of thing. He's going to anticipate their argument because he's just said to them uh, in, in verses 5 through 7, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And so he's anticipating that their answer to that is going to be, but we don't sin. We don't have sin. Yeah, if, if we were walking in darkness, if we were sinning, we might need this. But we aren't actually sinning. And so he's going to combat that by what he says in verses 8 through 10. And he begins with this. If we claim to be without sin, so, they, so there he's saying, he's anticipating that they're going to say we don't have sin. Well, if you claim that then, if that's going to be your claim, you deceive yourself. And the truth is not in you. So if we claim to be without sin, literally says we do not have sin. If, if, if you claim, if we claim that you do not have sin, and that could have three possible meanings, uh, that, that we do not have sin. It, they could be saying, they could be claiming that they don't have the condition of sin. Uh, Essentially, they don't have a sin nature, although it might just be that's not part of who we are. They could be saying that, that, yeah, we may sin, but that's not relevant, that sin is no longer, no longer has any relevance in their lives because of this new knowledge they have and this fellowship they have with God. So they could be saying, yeah, we sin, but that has no impact on our fellowship with God. Uh, It could mean we no longer commit sins since we have come into this new relationship, this new fellowship with God. 
So which of those is it? I, you know, I don't know that we can say for sure, but I would lean toward the first, that we don't have the condition of sin. And I would lean toward that for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it is, it is more consistent with the way John uses the verb to have in all of his writings. Generally speaking, when he uses those, that specific verb, he then follows it with a general condition or a general quality, not something specific, like specific sins. And so that's more in keeping with how John uses that verb. But the other reason is the second reason to say that uh, sin no longer has any relevance to us, that's, that's kind of speculating a little bit on the argument. We don't know the exact arguments that were being made by the secessionists. There's some theologians that'll say, oh yeah, they were Gnostics. Well, they couldn't have been Gnostics. It was too soon for that. And so we can't know um, exactly what their arguments were. And to me, that's reading too much into. It's inferring too much from what we know. Uh, and it's a little bit speculative. And then the third one, to say he was talking about specific sins, well, he, he's going to say that again in a couple of verses. And I don't think he's repeating himself. So there, there are theologians that believe he actually is repeating himself there. But I don't, I don't think that. I think that he's saying two sort of related but different things. And that in the first one, He's saying that, that they claim not to have the condition of sin, that they're saying sin is not a part of who they are. It's not an active principle in their lives, which is pretty close to saying that they don't have a sin nature. Now, there, which is obviously unbiblical, and there are two results, John says, of this attitude. And the first one is they are deceived. To say that any... any it, if any of those is true, to say we don't have a sin condition, to say sin is not relevant, to say that uh, we don't, no longer sin at all, well, all of that is wrong. Any of those would be they are deceived, that they are denying the obvious reality of sin. I mean, let's be real. You sin? Yeah. Yeah, all of us do. And all of us always have. Years ago when I taught world religions, uh, at Millard North, I had, um, a, I had different speakers come in, and one was a Buddhist, and he talked about the perfectibility of man, and what he was working toward was to make himself perfect, and he believed that he could do that. And so one of my students very innocently raised his hand and said, so are you there yet? And he said, well, no. And when I get in trouble, I still pray to God. You know, no, we, we can't get there. We are not perfect. We will not be perfect. And we are deceived if we believe that we don't sin or that we don't have a condition of sin. But in this case, this is deliberate denial. Because, duh, it is obvious that we have the condition of sin. You ever been around a two-year-old? Please. You know, it's obvious that we have the condition of sin. They're not ignorant. They're arrogant uh, in their thinking. They are attempting to cover up their sin. So that's the first result of that attitude. The second one, John says, is that the truth is not in them. Uh, that, that, and so what is that then? What does he mean by the truth? What is it that is not in them? Well, the truth describes God. John has described God as being true. So the truth describes God. Jesus is the truth. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. So at very least, at very least, John is saying that they lack an essential characteristic of God. 
The characteristic that is true of God and of Jesus, that they are truth, is not in them. And perhaps he is even saying that God slash Jesus is not in them. Indeed, they may not and probably are not Christians at all because this is so far out of bounds of the truth. And so then he says, if we, however, on the other hand, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What is confession? Confession is just speaking the truth to God about ourselves and about our sin. It's admitting to God what God already knows. Man, that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. And it's keeping short accounts both with God and the people we sinned against. It's saying, when it happens, saying, man, that was wrong. Had to do it last night with my son. In my defense, I, I mean, I can't even believe he did this. I was dead tired. I'd had four hours of sleep the night before. I'd worked all day. I fell asleep on the couch, and the phone rings. I'm in the living room. The phone is in the kitchen. And in my estimation, I jump up from the couch and I run to the phone. It probably didn't look like that in real life. But, and I, because I have to get there by the fourth ring. And I was, you know, my heart's going like this. I think I'm, my heart's okay. I don't think, it's because my heart's beating, I didn't have a heart attack. I get to the phone and I say, Keezer's residence, Mom, dude, where are you? I'm in my bed. Oh. <laughs> what do you want, buddy? <laughs> He wanted me to print something off for him. Uh, don't, don't forget to print off that article. I'm like, it's your homework. You get out of bed and come down here. Don't ever do this again. And I hung up. <laughs> oh, keep short accounts. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't need to get angry. I could have handled that better. I, I mean, I probably was justified in being a little angry, but I could have dealt with my anger a little bit better. To confess that both to God and to each other, that I was wrong. That was, uh, that was sin. Uh, and and to, uh, it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time thing. But here's what I want you to know about forgiveness. We are not forgiven because we confess. We're forgiven because of the character of God. We are forgiven because he is faithful and just. That's just who he is. To say that God is faithful is to say that God is trustworthy and he will fulfill the commitments he has made to his people. In other words, in this case, to forgive them. He is faithful. He will forgive us, not because we confess, but because he is faithful. And his faithfulness toward us has prompted him to provide the way for that forgiveness of sins, which is Jesus. And to say that God is just is to say that he acts with complete righteousness and fairness. Now, these two concepts can seem at odds with one another. And, and I want you to, we're going to take a little circuitous route, but I want you to follow along with this because this is important. Because God is at the same time just and merciful. And, and you know that song that says, Justice and mercy meet at the cross? That's exactly true. Because there's no other way that God could have been both just and merciful in forgiving our sins other than Jesus. Think about this. Mercy means not giving us what we deserve. 
That is what God did for us in Christ on the cross. It is merciful for God to send his son to die for our sins. But is it just? Is it fair? Let me ask you this. Y'all familiar with Nico Jenkins? Okay, let's say they just let him go again. Would any of us go, well, that's fair? No, that's not fair. And they shouldn't have let him go. And there was an outcry the first time they let him go to kill four more people. And he told them they, he was going to do it. You know, that's not fair. That's not just. And we would have this outcry. Well, Jesus hung on a cross to forgive our sins. We didn't deserve that. What we deserved is death in our own right. The only way that we could be forgiven of our sins and God still be true to his character, his complete nature of being both just and merciful, uh, is Jesus, the only way. And, and Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, if there's any other way, Father, there was no other way. If God would have just brushed our sins under the rug and said, that's okay, that's, that's all right, we'll just act like that didn't happen, that would be merciful, but it wouldn't be just. And it's funny that when other people sin, we want justice. When we sin, we want mercy. We want mercy. Yeah, that would be merciful, but it would not be just. It, if he made a way, uh, if he made us pay for the penalty of our own sin, that would be just but it wouldn't be merciful. It would be giving us what we deserve, but it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be merciful. In Christ, God's mercy was poured out on us in our forgiveness because his justice was poured out on Jesus, because his justice was satisfied by Jesus, whom he sent to die and who willingly died for us. How Beautiful and amazing is that, that God would love us that much and that Jesus, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down, that Jesus willingly died. And then John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. To forgive literally means to let go. And I will, I will forgo singing a Frozen song, but that's <laughs> literally what it means to let go, although I gotta tell you, to hear 156 uh, kindergarten through fifth graders all singing that song together in unison while watching the movie, best thing to see, it's just so wonderful. There's one kid going, shh, shh, but the other 155 <laughs> are singing at the top of their lungs, it was wonderful. It literally means to let go, to cancel a debt. To purify, means to remove the effect of the sin, namely to restore our relationship with God, to make us right before him. And he is faithful and just in doing both of those things. And then we have another claim of the secessionists in verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, we make God out to be a liar. If we say we have not sinned, now, now what does that mean? Well, now he means if you say you haven't committed specific sins, so meaning we have not committed specific sins, either because we've stopped sinning altogether 
or because it just isn't important because we've evolved to such a higher spiritual state. And again, there are two results of this. There are two consequences of this. The first is, not only are you a liar, but you're calling God a liar. You make God out to be a liar because the consistent testimony of Scripture is that we are sinful. And I, I forgot to look this up. Pretty sure it's Isaiah, maybe Jeremiah, and I know it's a prophet. <laughs> the heart of man is desperately evil and wicked above all things. Who can know it? That doesn't mean, hey, we can be good. No, it means we're evil. It means we're wicked. That's who we are. We sin because we are sinful. And we call God a liar. We commit sins because we are sinful. And, and if, if you say you have not sinned, who's telling the truth? Either God is right or you're right. Hmm, I wonder. I wonder. Uh, and then the second consequence is the word has no place in that person's life. Now, what is the word? Well, it could mean the truth of Scripture has no place in that person's life. It could mean Jesus, who is the word and the word of life. And most theologians believe John is being intentionally amb ambiguous there, that both are true. Neither the word of God, the Scriptures, nor the word of life, Jesus, has any place in that person's life. You know, when I read that uh, earlier where he says he's a liar, you know, I, th I think of Princess Bride. Liar! <laughs> you know? And, and this is strong stuff. I mean, we all think of John. I mean, he's just the mushiest apostle ever, isn't he? He's just Mr. Love. Love, love, love all the time. No. He's pretty harsh here, isn't he? He's pretty strong. And so he's going to turn uh, and make sure they know, I'm not being harsh with you. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. This, this term, dear children, we're going to see it again. And, and this, this first part of this verse is something of a parenthesis. Uh, and, and we see John's pastor heart here. He says, my dear children, or my little children, and that word is technia. We'll see that word again. It's an affectionate term. Uh, and then he also changes from third person back to first person. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. This is personal to John. And he wants to make sure that they understand, look, yeah, I'm being harsh toward these heretics, but that's not you. I love you, and I want you to know the truth because I love you. Uh, and so he wants to make sure he knows that his, that his tone toward them is, is soft and mushy and, and love. Uh, but then he has, uh, as he has said, that uh, before that he said, he's basically said, everybody sins. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar. Uh, and now he turns to say, I'm writing this to you, so you won't sin. Well, which is it? He's saying both. Um, but the historical context will probably help us understand why he's saying this. He may be saying that he doesn't want them to sin in the same way as the secessionists. He doesn't want them to fall into the same sin as the secessionists. I'm writing this to you so that you don't begin to believe that you haven't sinned, that you begin to deny your sin. And so that may be what that means, that sort of um, seeming uh, incongruity. But there's another thing here, and, and this happened 
to Paul as well. He may be writing that to make sure they don't get a false view of God's grace. This is what Romans 6 is all about, where, where Paul is telling them, so, so if grace you know, abounds, should sin abound all the more? That if God's just going to keep forgiving us, why not sin now and pray later? I mean, doesn't that make sense? There's a, there's a quote, and it's been variously attributed to different men, that goes like this. I like to sin. God likes to forgive sin. Really, the world is quite admirably arranged. If that's the attitude of, well, I can sin because God forgives, then, then we've got the whole thing wrong. We show that we don't even have a relationship with God. In one sense, it is true. I do sin, and God is willing to forgive. But that forgiveness came at the cost of the life of his son. That's serious. And that price, that high, high price, means that I can't take my sin lightly. I can't cheapen the grace of God by saying, no big deal, I can sin, I'll be forgiven. I must take that uh, seriously and not take it for granted. So there are two solutions to our sin problem, and guess what? Both of them are Jesus. First, he is our advocate. That word in the Greek is actually parakletos, and John uses it a lot in his gospel. Generally, he uses it for the Holy Spirit, but here he is specifically calling uh, Jesus our parakletos. Um, and it literally means an aid or counselor, especially in a legal setting. And the first thing I think of as uh, one who works in the summers with foster children is CASA, Cordis Appointed Special Paracletos. They say A, they say advocate, but that's what it is. And CASA are volunteers, and they are paired up with a foster child, and they make sure, their job is supposed to be, to make sure that child is treated fairly. They'd, to be an advocate for that child in the system. Because, of course, their social worker has lots of kids. So you have this kid, and you make sure that this child is treated fairly. Well, Jesus is our advocate before the Father. He is our, um, our casa, in a, in a sense. He is our parakletos. This is how uh, Dr. Colin Cruz puts it. He says, Jesus is the one who has acted righteously who now stands in the presence of the Father to speak on behalf of those who have not acted righteously. But that can kind of give us our picture of God being this judge who is against us, who's just waiting to bring down the gavel and say, guilty, and oh, I like you, okay, I won't. And that's not the picture that we should have of God because we have to remember that that. Um, Jesus is not pleading our case as if God doesn't, were against us. That, oh, we need to have that advocate because God is against us. No. Who sent Jesus in the first place? God the Father. He is for us. He is not against us. God is eager to forgive, and Jesus himself is our advocate. He sits at, right, at, at God's right hand as proof that our sins have been forgiven. It is his blood shed on our cross that is our defense. That is why we can be made right with God. And he, so he says he's our parakletos. He also says he is our atoning sacrifice. This says propitiation. 
Um, but most versions, because that's a word that people go, what's propitiation? It means atoning sacrifice. The Greek word is actually, oh, did I not put that up there? Interesting. That's interesting. Uh, can we go? Uh, I want to go back. No. That's another good word, though. That's okay. I must have not, it was midnight. I must have not put it up there. It's okay. Uh, which is halasmos. H-I-L-A-S-M-O-S. And, and that word is found often in the Old Testament because a halasmos was an Old Testament sacrifice that covered the sin of the person and satisfied God's righteous anger. And so John is saying that Jesus is both our parakletos, our advocate, and our halasmos, our atoning sacrifice. Jesus has done everything necessary, everything needed to make us right with God. But he not only died for our sins, he died for the sins of the whole world. Well, what does that mean? It's easier to tell you what that doesn't mean, what it can't mean. And it can't mean that everyone is saved. Because that would contradict the whole of scripture, and John would even be contradicting himself in this letter. What it does mean is that Jesus has done, it does mean that Jesus' work is comprehensive, that he has done everything needed to pay for all sin everywhere. His blood is enough to cover every sin ever committed. However, that forgiveness can only be appropriated through faith. Now, let's go back here where we talked about the halasmos and that, that it both covered our sin and it assuaged or it took care of God's anger. Um, because um, as our halasmos, Jesus has done everything necessary to pay the debt of our sin and to make us right with God. And part of making us right with God is to assuage God's anger. And that is something that makes us squeamish. And we begin to go, angry? You angry? <laughs> God's angry? What, what is God angry? Is he angry at us? Is he angry at the sin? Is he angry at both? Actually, it de depends on which theologian you read, which answer you'll get. But at very least, God is angry at sin. And God's righteous anger can make us squeamish. And we somehow feel like we need to explain God or make excuses for him and go, well, the New Testament God is much nicer. He's not that angry God anymore. That's not true. It's the same God, and he doesn't need my help in explaining his character. If we understand the seriousness of our sin, we can better understand God's anger. A couple years ago at track camp, which is our camp, girls track camp, which is our camp for teen girls, there was a young woman who has been in the news quite a lot and was even recently. And the reason she was at track camp, the reason she and her little, uh, I think, three-year-old sister were taken out of their mother's care is because the mother prostituted both of them to multiple men. If that doesn't make you angry, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. And we get that. We're like, oh, that makes me angry. You know what, ladies? My sin is no better. My sin separates me from God. I am desperately evil and wicked above all things. Who can know me? My sin put Jesus on that 
cross, even though I've never done anything that bad, I am a sinful woman, and my sin put Jesus on that cross, and that is a serious thing, and that is part of what John is trying to communicate here. The fact that my sin put Jesus on that cross, that should bother me a little bit. Actually, that should bother me a lot, shouldn't it? So rather than trying to explain away God's anger, perhaps instead I should be a little ticked at my own rebellion toward a holy God. I love a story. I don't know if it's a true story. I like to believe it is. So let's just say it's a true story. That uh, Albert Einstein's wife was one, once asked, I asked, I've also heard that she was actually very brilliant, but let's just pretend she wasn't. Uh, that Albert Einstein's wife was once asked by, um, by someone, uh, some reporter, uh, Mrs. Einstein, do you understand your husband's theory of relativity? And her answer was this, no, I don't, but I know Albert, and he can be trusted. You know what? We're not going to understand everything about God. But ladies, he is good, and he knows what he's doing, and he can be trusted, whether or not we understand everything about him. Well, in verses uh, 3 through 11, John is going to make several more assertions or claims that these secessionists were making. And he says three times, even though it's interpreted differently, each time he says the exact same thing in the Greek, and it says, whoever claims. And those three claims are whoever claims to know God, whoever claims to live in him, meaning God or Jesus, and whoever claims to be in the light. And these were all three claims of the secessionists. But really, truly, those are claims that could be any Christian could make. I, I claim to know God. I claim to um, live in him, and I claim to be in the light. The issue here is not the claim itself. The issue and the problem, however, is making these claims and then not living them out, not seeing that in the way we live our lives. Uh, and so the focus in this section is on obedience, on hearing and following God's voice. Here's, and I meant to put this up there, I'm sorry I didn't, here's a great quote from Dr. Burge. He says, theological orthodoxy, no matter how stringent, is hazardous if not linked to a living Christian faith. As, and as John will affirm in these verses, an orthodox faith lived in denial of God's commands will have perilous, even deadly effects for the possessor as well as those nearby. One of the things I read last uh, spring, because springtime is my time to read any book I want, and I want to read commentaries. It's just what I read the rest of the year. And I read this book, and I read it for one reason. It's called 30 Rooms to Hide In. It's difficult to read. But I read it because it is the memoir of my best childhood's friend's husband. So this was written by someone I know. He's really quite famous in the advertising world. And uh, he was raised by a loving, free-spirited mother and an alcoholic, abusive father who was, at the time, uh, the foremost orthopedic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. And he has a profound, I don't think hatred is too strong a word, of Christ and Christians and all thing, things biblical to this day. And here's why. He had a grandmother who, while, while thoroughly orthodox in her beliefs, was an angry, bitter, self-righteous, vengeful woman, 
and spewed it out on everyone around her. And John's saying that if that's how we live our lives, what we believe may be true, but we're not living it out, and that, that's going to have disastrous effects. And it certainly has for Luke and my dear friend Rosie, who I've been praying for for 30 years. And it's important then that we live out what it is that we believe. And so we begin here in verses 3 through 5. We know we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. So uh, the thesis statement for this entire passage, actually through verse 11, can be found in verse 3, where he says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. It is our heartfelt obedience that is the evidence that we truly know God. If we know God, if we love God, it will be borne out in our lives. When he says there, we, have, we know we have come to know him, it literally means we can be sure we have come to know him. We can know that for sure. And the Greek tense indicates a past consequence with ongoing circumstances. This knowing Jesus is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And, and that knowledge of Jesus is experiential. It's not a head thing. It's an experience. It is, in short, a relationship. And if we know and love Jesus, our actions will indicate this. Uh, my husband has, uh, for lack of a better term, food allergies. That's what we call them because that's what people understand. But the fact is they're migraine triggers, and there are a lot of them. And, and, and we have to, and particularly as the cook of the family, I have to jealously guard those allergies. I know Jeff. I know him well. We've been married for 28 years. I love him. I am in relationship with him. I don't just know about the allergies. I know specifically what they are and I do something about it. I would never, never cook anything that would be a migraine trigger for Jeff. In fact, one time he was getting headaches and we couldn't figure it out, and I started religiously going through all the ingredients of everything I was buying at the store. They had changed the bread recipe of the bread I'd been buying and that included raisin juice, grapes and raisins, Whoa, bad. He tried for the first time in about 15 years taking communion last time. He won't do that again. <laughs> that was bad. And that was what was causing the headaches. I would never do anything that would cause him to have a migraine. Why? Because I love him and I know him. And because I love him and I know him, my actions are in accord with that love and knowledge. On a much grander scale, that's what John is saying. Because I know and love Jesus, my actions should be in accord with his will, with his word, with his commands. And if they're not, then I don't really love him. If the consistent direction of my life is away from Jesus, then I'm not following him. I'm moving away from him. These are harsh words. Um, to say we know Jesus, but to continue to walk in disobedience. Remember that word peripoteo. That's a pattern of life. To say we know Jesus and to walk in a pattern of disobedience um, at the same time is to be a liar. If we truly knew him, 
we would obey. Jesus said that. If you know me, you will. If you love me, you will obey me. The truth is not in that person. The truth, meaning God, Jesus, and God's word, is absent from their lives. This is a picture of someone who believes he is connected to God when in truth he is seriously disconnected from God. That word obedience, it it does mean observance, but it means more than that. It means to follow diligently, to guard carefully, to realize and protect a truth. It is a passion to adhere to God's truth. It is walking in God's truth. It is a pattern of walking in God's truth, a pattern of obedience. It doesn't mean we won't mess up sometimes, but that's not our normal way of walking. And then he says, and and, and in this new NIV, it gets to the point a little better, but he says that obedience completes or perfects God's love, meaning that when we obey, our love for God reaches its goal, reaches its completion. We are most being like God when we love, when we obey. Uh, Here's how Dr. Burge puts it. He says, when we have discovered God's inexhaustible love for us, We love him utterly, and this is expressed tangibly in obedience to his will. John's talking about commands here. Well, what are those commands? That's what he's going to get to next here. When he says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. By the way, just as an aside, that John would say, if you're you're going to be in him, you must walk as Jesus did, that means they had a written account of Jesus' life this early. That's proof. Because how would they know how how Jesus walked if they didn't have an account of his life? Uh, So that's just an aside. But if we know Jesus, we will walk as he walked. Our pattern of life will conform more and more to his. And it is that growing Christ-likeness that helps us know that we are in him. Now, I was going to talk a little bit, but we're running out of time, what it means to be in Christ. Um, And I I won't do that now. But if we are growing in Christ-likeness, that is our proof in essence, that is showing that we are in him. But what about this new and old command thing? I'm I'm giving you a new command and yet it's an old command. Um, Well, in one sense, it's an old command because the command to love one another is nothing new. We find it in the Old Testament. So on the one hand, it's a command found in the Old Testament. On the other hand, in John 13, Jesus said, I give you a new command. By the way, uh, that's what Maundy Thursday means. It means commandment, a new, com- new commandment, Thursday. Uh, and so I give you a new command, love one another as I have loved you. And so it's new in the sense that Jesus has brought something completely new to this command. We are to love as he loved, with our very lives. With the coming of Jesus, a new era has dawned on the church. Because of Jesus, we not only know what love is, we are able to live it out. We have the power through the Holy Spirit to live it out in our lives. And because of Jesus, the darkness is passing away and the light has come. 
Well, let's finish this up really fast in verses 9 through 11, where he says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing new in them. There is nothing in them, excuse me, to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So here's another claim of the secessionists. They claimed to walk in the light, but they actually walked in the darkness, and they proved that because they hated their brothers and sisters. If we love God, we will love each other. If we love God and we're in a, in, walking in the light, it will show in the way we treat one another. Dr. Burge says to know God and to abide in, abide in him means to obey, and to obey is to exhibit Christ-like love. Uh, and so love is the true test. How we love one another is a true test of our love for God. You know, when, uh, sometimes when I talk to my kids about obedience, I tell them, you know, when I tell you come eat this ice cream, that's not really obedience. When I tell you come clean your room and you do it, that's obedience. Love is really love when we love someone difficult to love. That's true love. To love someone we, we love anyway I mean, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But the true test of our love is when we love those particularly in the body of Christ who are difficult to love. And that is when we are most exhibiting Christ-like love. Ladies, we're pretty unlovely, but Jesus died for us anyway. You know the verse that says Christ died for our sins. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The context around that is that while we were in rebellion to God, Christ died for us. Well, I don't have time to get to the rest of this because Mandy's already walked in and said, do you know there are children downstairs waiting to be picked up? Uh, so I want to just end with this. Um, John is not giving us some spiritual to-do list here. He's saying, uh, he's saying that what we need to be is in intimacy with God. All of this boils down to intimacy with God, knowing God. Because love is not love if it's forced, if it's compelled, if it's, if it's compelled, if it's commanded. It's not that I just need to work harder on loving people. It's that I need to know Jesus. I need to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. The story of the Bible is not the story of every other religion, which is how can we reach God? The story of the Bible is God's passionate pursuit of us, his people. He loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die that we might live in relationship with him through Christ. Have you ever noticed when you hang around with somebody, you begin to act more like them? You begin to take on more of their characteristics? When, when my son is with his best friend Elijah and they find something funny, they laugh the exact same laugh. Before Lane met Elijah, by, by the way, his mother's here with us today, he didn't laugh that way. He's taken on that characteristic of Elijah. As we spend time with Jesus, we become more like him. We take on that Christ-likeness. It's all about relationship. Now, you, some of you are here, and you're in relationship with Jesus, and that's going great, and that's, that's great. But others of you might be in one of two different places. You may, you may say, yeah, I have a relationship with God, but I feel distant from him. May I say to you in all gentleness, he hasn't moved. 
Return to him. He is waiting for you like the prodigal son. Return to him. Walk in his light, staying near to him in prayer and confession and relationship with other believers. Um, But perhaps you're here and you're going, relationship with God? What's that mean? I don't even know if I have that. May I tell you that, man, I would dearly love to talk to you about what that means. I know your small group leaders would dearly love to talk to you about what that means. Take that step to talk to somebody about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You won't regret it. I promise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this truth. Thank you that that Jesus is our advocate before a God who loves us so dearly that he sent us that advocate in the first place and that Jesus loved us so dearly that he sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. Father, may we walk more and more in that truth, in your love, and in relationship with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.